Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. Welcome back to Why Is That. It has been a few months since I uploaded my end of show episode. I'm not ending the end, instead this is more of just a bonus episode. I kind of missed researching and writing episodes for all of you, so I dusted off my Google Docs account and made a new episode. If people are still subscribed and interested, I might occasionally post new episodes, but I'm not yet committing to regular episodes. In 1979, the United Nations adopted the International Treaty known as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It has been described as an International Bill of Rights for Women. The CEDAW was designed as an action plan that required ratifying nations to achieve compliance in the areas of civil rights, reproductive rights, and gender relations. After it was adopted by the UN's General Assembly, it was sent to the UN's member states for ratification. The treaty received ratification by the 20 necessary member states faster than any other convention in UN history to that point and went into legal effect as an international treaty on September 3, 1981. Since then, it has been ratified by all but six of the 193 member states of the United Nations, with South Sudan being the most recent in 2015. The six who have not ratified or acceded to the convention are Iran, Palau, Somalia, Sudan, Tonga, and the United States. The U.S. had been one of the convention's first signatories in July of 1980, and President Jimmy Carter had signed the treaty and sent it to the Senate for ratification. Unfortunately, the lame duck President Carter did not have the political capital to get the treaty through the Senate in his final year in office, and the incoming Reagan administration had nothing to gain by taking up its ratification. The treaty has been debated five times by the U.S. Senate and has been defeated each time. Typically, the treaty is defeated as its opponents call it at best unnecessary, and at worst say it would subject the United States to the winds of an international agency. Though the reproductive rights and enforcement of gender-neutral work rules are usually the focus of its most vocal detractors. The CEDAW has a very fascinating history and content that I could fill a full episode with, but the reason I brought it up was specific to Article 16. In part, it prohibited discrimination against women in all matters relating to marriage and family relations, and specifically required the same personal rights as husband and wife, including the right to choose a family name, a profession, and an occupation. Today we are focusing on the right to choose a family name portion. A family name, also known as a surname or last name, is the part of one's personal name that is inherited from their family unit. In many English-speaking countries, it is common for the wife to change her last name upon marriage and adopt the husband's family name. For instance, according to Seattle Bride Magazine, an estimated 20% of today's American women opt to retain their name after marriage, whereas the other 80% adopt their husband's family name. A wife changing her last name is so common and accepted that one of the most common security questions used by banks is, what is your mother's maiden name? In the 1970s and 80s, when the CEDAW was drafted and being adopted, the ability to keep one's birth-given family name at marriage was an issue of equality and a repudiation of any vestiges of coverture. Today, the more off-cited reasons are rooted in practicality or an already established professional identity. For some reason, when I read the piece on the established professional identity, it made me think of the Friends episode that immediately followed the real-life marriage of Courtney Cox and David Arquette. In the title sequence, as each cast member's name appeared, it included the hyphenated name Arquette. 
So Jennifer Aniston became Jennifer Aniston Arquette, and Matthew Perry became Matthew Perry Arquette. It was a fun little way to celebrate the marriage and mark the legal name change of one of the show's stars to Courtney Cox Arquette. This name change represents the hybrid approach of keeping your name and adopting a new one by combining them with the hyphen. Before we get too deep into the modern family name changes, I thought it would be helpful to delve into family names, surnames, and last names in general to provide us with a nice foundation to answer the question why we have maiden names. Beginning of each episode, I start by introducing myself. Hi, I'm Travis. Travis is my given name, and as far as we can surmise, given names have existed since we humans first started speaking. Which makes sense. Yelling, hey you, might get my attention some of the time, but yelling, hey Travis, gets my attention all the time. As a result of the necessity of a given name, even our earliest archaeological items often bear identifications. Clay tablets have been discovered from the Jemdet Nazar period in Sumeria, that date between 3200 and 3101 BCE. Written on them in cuneiform writing is what is believed to be an accounting ledger. On it are the names of Galsal and his two slaves, Anapak X and Sukalger, along with the name of the Turgunu family accountant, Turgunu Sanga. At the same time in Egypt, the name of pre-dynastic king Irihor has been found on pottery shards dating to 3200 BCE in a tomb in Abydos. The accountant, Turganu Sanga, provides us with an example of both a first name and a family name. It is our oldest known family name in existence. The Epic of Gilgamesh is thought to have been composed around 1800 BCE and is often regarded as the earliest surviving great work of literature. In it, we are introduced to the protagonist, Gilgamesh, son of Ninsun, and in Tablet 11, to Utnapishtim, the son of Ubaru Tutu. Son of Ninsun and son of Ubara Tutu are direct identifiers as Gilgamesh was the son of the goddess Ninsun, Utnapishtim was the son of the Sumerian king Ubaro Tutu. It gives us an example of a metronymic identifier, an identifier that uses the name of one's mother, and of a patronymic identifier, an identifier that uses the name of one's father. Using the name of the parent was an important way to identify and legitimize a person. Typically, the name of the more important parent was the one used. However, over time, the patronymic became the more prevalent, typically because many societies adopted a patriarchal form of government and or society. While son of Ninsun, or maybe Ninsunsun, has a similar ring as our modern last names of Anderson, Thompson, Fitzpatrick, or Johnson, it is different as it is not a fixed name, instead a direct identifier. Gilgamesh's son, Ernungal, was not known as Ernungal Ninsunsun, and instead known as Ernungal, son of Gilgamesh. As a result, this form does not share our modern notion of family name, though this type of identifier was the inspiration of many modern family names that still exist. The system just took a few thousand years to formalize, and for the son of modifier to remain the same no matter what the name of the parent was. As an aside, if you want to learn more about the Epic of Gilgamesh, I would suggest episode 3 of the Literature and History podcast. Rather than continuing to cite examples of names and identifiers from our oldest surviving texts, I want to zoom in on a civilization and explore how they utilize names. Specifically, we'll look at classical Athens, and we will use a very famous example, Socrates. If your response to Socrates was, wait, isn't Socrates a mononymous person? That is, a single-named person, like Cher? Then you are not alone. If you went to his Wikipedia page, you would only see the name Socrates. 
It also may not be entirely inaccurate, as the Greeks practiced very different naming conventions than our own. However, a full name of Socrates would have been Socrates Sophroniscu Alopikithin. The Greeks had three possible elements in naming convention and identification. In this example, Socrates was the man's given name. Almost all ancient Greeks conformed to the Indo-European pattern of having only one given name. The second element, Sophroniscu, is the patronymic. Socrates' father was named Sophriscus, and by changing it to the genitive case, it becomes son of Sophriscus. This element of his name can be found in Plato's dialogue, Lashes. The third element, Elopikithin, is known as either the ethnic or demotic element. In this case, it denotes that he was from the Elopiki deme of Athens. As deems were very localized, there is evidence that outside of Athens, the demotic identifier would have been replaced with a location identifier and denoted he was from Athens instead of specifying that he was from the Alopiki deme. Deems are kind of like neighborhoods if you don't know what they are. This example shows how 400s BCE Athens held similar naming conventions to the Sumer of the Epic of Gilgamesh, specifically with people known primarily by their given name and then further identified by parent's name and location if further clarification was needed. This format allowed for easier identification, but is still quite dissimilar to our set family names of today. For the Western world, it was not until the 1000 CE that we started to see these types of names taking hold. You will note that I specifically indicated the Western world. In China, tradition tells us that family names were formalized under Emperor Fuzi in 2852 BCE in order to facilitate census taking. Originally, these family names were derived by the mother's family name, though the change to the father's name was completed by the time of the Shang Dynasty, which ruled from 1600 to 1046 BCE. Modern Chinese naming conventions also differ quite drastically from the Anglophone world. While this practice of identifying early naming conventions of the world has provided some interesting stories, we will need to narrow our focus in order to answer the question of surnames and maiden names. We will specifically be focusing on the English-speaking tradition of family names. This is due to the wide ranging of naming conventions throughout the world and the unique way those systems developed. If you want to learn more about those systems, let me know and maybe I will do a follow-up episode. In 1066, William the Bastard became William the Conqueror, as he and his Normans conquered England. He was then installed as king. In the early years of consolidation that followed, William ordered a great survey be taken of much of the landed England and parts of Wales. The results were compiled into a manuscript known as the Domesday Book. The Domesday Book was a survey listing all the land holdings in England, along with their pre-conquest and current holders. It was compiled in 1086, and it lists people's names and land ownership. The names listed include first and last names, and for the list presents some of the earliest recorded English surnames. Perhaps the best name recorded is that of Humphrey Golden Bollocks. Among those on the list that are still in use today include Banks, Alder, Black, Godwin, and Sylvester. BritishSurnames.co.uk has a full list of the surnames that were used in the Domesday Book that are still active in case you are curious if your own surname dates back that far. Similarly to the names we have already discussed, the surnames used in the Domesday Book were not all fixed. Many, like that of Golden Bollocks, were personal nicknames, or, like William de Normandy, toponyms, and would not have been passed down generation to generation. However, as I noted, some of these surnames remained with us to this day, and as the Roman bureaucracy grew, so too did the need for surnames. 
It was over the next few hundred years that the system of surnames became increasingly formalized and families began to take permanent surnames that would be passed from generation to generation. Most sources I found indicated that this process lasted from the 11th century to the 16th century in England. By the 1500s, it is estimated that approximately 70% of British people were using a hereditary surname. This was in part thanks to growing populations that required a clearer means for identification, in part thanks to growing social circles, and in part thanks to the evolution of record-keeping. The record-keeping portion specifically had to do with church record-keeping, as it had to do with birth, marriage, and death, and state record-keeping, as it had to do with taxes. A full name, given, and family were often required for financial record-keeping and transactions. All this to say that there was not one specific event or era that ushered in surnames as we know them today, but instead a gradual shift to a more formalized naming system. As that naming system developed, it also came with specific conventions that solved issues like which name should the child inherit? In some circumstances, it was to the more influential, powerful, wealthy, or prestigious family name that the new family couple would adopt as their family name going forward. There are instances in this time period where husbands took the names of their wives. Perhaps the most famous case was that of the marriage of Mary Bowes and John Leon, the ninth Earl of Strathmore. In order for John Leon to change his name to John Bowes, he had to appear in front of Parliament and request the name change. It was granted in 1767. Two of their five children chose to hyphenate the names of their parents for their surnames, while the other three inherited the Bowes name. This was allowed due to the early death of Mary's father, which resulted in Mary becoming the wealthiest heiress in Britain, with a stipulation in her father's will that in order to inherit his fortune, Mary's husband would have to take her family name. These instances are very rare, however, as the society took to the practice that the English-speaking world largely still practices today, in which it is the male family name that is inherited from generation to generation, and the wives who take the husband's last name. This, in large part, is thanks to the patriarchal nature of English society in that time period. If the father is the one working, gaining a reputation, and expanding his social network, and the primary purpose of a name is to identify, it only makes sense that the child would inherit the father's family name and remain identified with him. For a wife taking the husband's name, we need to look a bit deeper into legal status, rights, and the history to understand this development. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. These Bible verses became the religious foundation of the legal doctrine known as coverture. Coverture finds that a woman's legal rights and obligations are subsumed by those of her husband upon their marriage. This is due to the fact that when a man and a woman are bound together in marriage, they become, legally speaking, one person or one flesh, and it is the husband's job to be the ruler. Therefore, under the legal doctrine of coverture, the wife had no legal existence. The woman performed all of her duties and lived her life under the husband's wing, protection, and cover. Legal jurist William Blackstone, in his Commentaries on the Laws of England, published from 1765 to 1770, had this to say on the legal effects of coverture. These are the chief legal effects of marriage during the coverture, upon which we may observe that even the disabilities which the wife lies under are for the most part intended for her protection and benefit. So great a favorite is the female sex of the laws of England. 
Coverture started to be developed into the English common law system with the reforms of King Henry II, who ruled from 1154 to 1189. King Henry II's reforms were more about consolidating the varied laws and jurisdictions throughout England and bringing them more in line with royal justice, which largely started the system we today think of as English common law. The Glanville Treaty, which is the earliest treaty on English law and dates from 1187 to 1189, was the greatest achievement of this reform, and it introduced systemic codifications that define the legal process. For our purposes, one of its immediate impacts was that ecclesiastical court retained jurisdiction over matters of marriage. This is an important note, as this period of time was also when a process described as the Christianization of medieval marriage was occurring, and in 100 years' time, we will find that the doctrine of coverture was fully embraced. Henry Bracton was an English cleric and legal jurist who lived from 1210 to 1268, and he is famous for his legal writings, including On the Laws and Customs of England. In it, he describes the legal principle of unity of person, where the husband and wife were considered legally one person, as they were one flesh and one blood. He noted that with this, the husband wielded power over their wife, were their ruler and the custodian of any property the wife may have. I do not want to overstate coverture, as there is evidence that the extent to which coverture applied has been overplayed in the period of 1200 to 1700, especially the early period. Historians continue to delve into court records that show women with property rights and women taking part in business transactions. Coverture was a legal principle and doctrine that was used, but it may not have been as all-encompassing as once believed. The overemphasis could partially be due to the more formalized version of coverture that we find in the better documented years of 1700 to 1900, and especially thanks to William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England that was published from 1765 to 1770. It was long regarded as the leading work on English law and played a large role in the development of the American legal system. Blackstone detailed coverture as an important principle to be followed and described it as the default for marriage. Either way, whether coverture was all-encompassing or overemphasized, it is a symptom of the inequality inherent in marriage throughout the time period in question. It was then a combination of the development of surnames and coverture over hundreds of years that started and then ingrained the tradition of the wife adopting the husband's surname at the time of marriage. In 1945, the Appellate Court of Illinois, in the case People x Rail Rigo v. Lipsky, had this to say on the matter. The long-established custom policy, and rule to the common law among English-speaking peoples, whereby a woman's name is changed by marriage and her husband's surname becomes, as a matter of law, her surname. On August 13, 1818, Lucy Stone was born. Stone was one of the largest influences on the first-wave feminist movement. She was a suffragist who helped organize the first National Women's Rights Convention in 1850 and then helped to hold the convention annually. Her whole life story is quite fascinating, and I would suggest Professor Buzzkill's episode on Lucy Stone for more information. When Lucy Stone wed in 1855, she chose the unprecedented choice to keep her birth surname. American suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton once said that Lucy Stone was the first woman in the nation to protest against the marriage laws at the altar and to manifest sufficient self-respect to keep her own name, to represent her individual existence through life. Stone is generally considered to be the first woman in American history to keep her birth name at marriage, though there were likely some other exemptions. Stanton, who had been born Elizabeth Cady, 
had taken the step of keeping her birth surname as a middle name when she was wed. When she heard of Stanton's decision to keep her full name, Stanton wrote to Stone that Nothing has been done in the women's rights movement for some time that so rejoiced my heart as the announcement by you of a woman's right to her name. Lucy Stone had done her due diligence when she was married to ensure that she was not breaking any laws by not changing her name. She consulted with an attorney who would later become the Chief Justice of the United States to ensure she had done nothing illegal. Her husband had denounced laws that framed women as unequal at the altar. On their wedding day, and pledged they would be equal partners in the marriage. However, in 1879, the city of Boston granted women the right to vote in school elections. Lucy Stone registered to vote, but on the day of the election, the officials would not allow her to vote unless she signed her name as Lucy Blackwell, the surname of her husband. She refused to do so, and thus was barred from voting. The feminist and suffragist movement continued to advocate for women's rights for the remainder of Lucy Stone's life, and in different forms and waves has continued to advocate for equality amongst the sexes to this day. In 1921, Ruth Hale founded the Lucy Stone League as the first group formed to fight for a woman's right to keep her maiden name after marriage and continued to use it legally afterward. Women who kept their name after marriage became known as Lucy Stoners. It was a slow process to acceptance. The 1920s, 30s, and 40s saw some advances in the movement, such as in 1925 when a married woman successfully received a U.S. passport with her maiden name for the first time. But there were also setbacks as well, like the 1945 Illinois Pellet case I quoted earlier. The 1950s, 60s, and 70s largely saw advances as jurisdictions throughout the United States found that there was no legal requirement for a woman to change her name upon marriage and that she could keep her maiden name as her legal name as long as she was not attempting to use it fraudulently. It was thanks to these advancements and the continued efforts of women for name equality that led the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in 1979 to include the need for equal right to choose one's name upon marriage. It has now become a right of women throughout the English-speaking world to choose their name at marriage, this has led to common practices such as keeping one's maiden name, the man adopting a woman's surname, hyphenating both last names, taking one birth's name as their middle name, taking one's birth name as their middle name, and name blending, such as if an Anderson and a Johnson married becoming Anderjohn. However, the wife adopting the husband's surname is still by far the most common. Based on a 2015 Google Consumer Survey conducted by the New York Times in 2015 and a 2009 study based on a 2004 American Community Survey, it is believed that only 10-20% to of women who have married kept their maiden name. Although I would say the fact that these women were given the personal choice on whether or not to adopt their husband's last name is a victory for personal freedom and gender equality, even if most choose to continue the old tradition. Okay, that is the story of the origin and development of surnames and maiden names. Surnames started as a means to further identify someone when a single given name was not enough to be understood. From 1200 to 1700 CE, the system of surnames was formalized and began to be permanent and passed down from generation to generation. At the same time, the one flesh doctrine formed into the legal doctrine of coverture. Due to the unity of person concept of marriage and the unequal status of males and females, became the common tradition for women to adopt their husband's surname at the time of their marriage. This tradition was not formalized into law, but as it entrenched itself in society, 
courts back to tradition, and it joined the English common law. As women fought for equal rights in the 19th and 20th centuries, they also fought for the freedom of women to choose whether or not to change their name at marriage. The growth and independence of women has resulted in the legal right of women to keep their name if they so choose. The tradition of taking the husband's name persists thanks to hundreds of years of tradition, but it is no longer expected or required. And that is how we received our surnames and how the tradition of maiden names began. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Why Is That Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, whether that is Podcast Republic, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else podcasts are streamed. Until next time, cheers.